Well, as I said at the start of the service, we are looking at this story that we find in the Old Testament, this Exodus story, the story of Moses. And we're doing this because one of the things that we believe is that all of Scripture actually teaches us about Christ. It teaches us about Jesus. And so we've been calling this series, The Gospel According to Moses. And so far, one of the, some of the things that we've seen in this story is, first and foremost, we've seen that God is indeed the God who saves And specifically, he saves us from serving and being enslaved to anything other than himself. We talked a little bit about this idea of the ways in which we we serve things that we think will satisfy only to find that they bind our hearts and enslave us. And so in week one, what we saw, God's desire is to set us free from those things. And then last week, we looked at this amazing encounter between uh, God and Moses at the burning bush. And, and we saw what does it mean to really have a spiritual encounter. It's to come face to face with the God who reveals himself in fire. The God who reveals himself to be absolutely holy and perfect. And yet a God who also is a God of love, who desires to call us to be a part of his mission. That's what we talked about last week. And so this week, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, those passages that really span uh, Exodus chapter 7 all the way to Exodus chapter 10. But I think that it's only right that before we dive into those uh, passages, uh, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you, you love to reveal your heart and your character through your word. And that we have this time, this place, when we can come together uh, publicly to really study that word together. And so, Lord, as we once more look at the book of Exodus, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight. That you would open our minds so that we could understand and open our hearts so that we could receive your word for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, uh, the text that we're looking for tonight is actually a massive portion of Exodus, um, which is uh, great because it's so rich, but also a challenge when you have to preach on it um, because it is uh, such a long uh, passage. It is these plague narratives. Um, one of the things that we saw in our uh, passage for, yes, for last time, for last week, was God was sending Moses back to speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt who had been holding the Israelites in bondage and in slavery. And he says, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, what if he doesn't? And he says, then I will do wonders through you. I will strike the Egyptians, and then I will bring you out. I will bring your people out with a mighty hand. And that brings us to these plague narratives. And, and honestly, these plague narratives for, for modern people, this is, these plague narratives are one of the things that modern people really struggle with when it comes to God. Specifically, this idea that God is a God who judges in fact, one of the things that, that God tells um, the people of Israel is that he is indeed the great I am, but furthermore, that when, he, uh, when they go into slavery, God is going to eventually deliver them through an act of judgment. It's something that God actually foretells to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, he tells Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, 
And, and your descendants, they will, uh, they will dwell in a foreign land for, for many generations. And while they're there, they will be enslaved. And then this is one of the things that he tells Abraham. He says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And sure enough, that's what's happening in our text. The punishment, the judgment of God is about to fall on Egypt. And again, modern people struggle with this. I don't, we say things like, oh, I don't like this idea that God is a, a judge. I mean, this whole idea of divine punishment, it's just so off-putting. I mean, isn't God supposed to be a God of love and compassion and mercy? Well, what is going on here with, this, uh, with these plagues and this judgment? What, how can we possibly even look to this as having any merit or value or wisdom or insight? It just seems so backwards. So to help us wrestle with that, and to help us actually enter into the text, one of the things that I think we have to see and that we have to understand about the plague narratives is that all the plagues are really an answer to one single question. All the plagues are really an answer. They're God's answer to one single question. And it's a question that's actually asked in Exodus chapter 5. When Moses first comes to Pharaoh, this is what he says. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. See, this question, who is the Lord, is really the question to which the plagues give an answer. Because if you're studying this in the Hebrew language, what you see is when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, what he's using is that divine name that God revealed to Moses in our passage for last week. That when Moses says, so who are you? Who do I say has sent me? Uh, what is your name? God says, I am who I am. It's the divine name of Yahweh. And so when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? He's saying, well, who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know Yahweh. And I'm not going to let Israel go. And the reason why this is important is because Pharaoh is asking this question not as an atheist. He's asking this question as a religious pluralist. You see, the Egyptians believed in many different gods. In many ways, it's very similar to our modern American society today, right? There are lots of different religions, lots of different philosophies, and, and many people in our society today say, well, why should I believe in one? I mean, doesn't everybody have their own path? Aren't there multiple ways to God, multiple ways to heaven? I mean, you have your God, I have my God. Well, why should I feel like I have to follow your path? And really, that's what the Pharaoh is saying. He's just like, Yahweh, who's Yahweh? I, I don't know your little tribal deity, I mean, you have your gods, I have my gods, and, 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 and your God I've never even heard of. So I'm not going to let your people go. But this question, who is Yahweh, is really the heart of understanding the plague narratives because what we see is in the plagues, God reveals himself, uh, reveals really three things about himself. He reveals first and foremost that he is the unique judge. He is the unique judge. Secondly, he reveals that he is the natural judge. And third, he reveals himself to be the saving judge. The unique judge, the natural judge, and the saving judge. So let's dive into this for just a second. First and foremost, God reveals himself to be the unique judge. Because as I just said, the Egyptians believed in many, many 
gods. There were gods really for everything. There was a god of the sun. There was a god of the Nile. There was the god of life, the god of death, the god of fertility, the god of livestock, the god of all these different things. And one of the things that you notice as you work your way through the Exodus narrative and specifically through these plague stories is that each one of these plagues strikes at the heart of the Egyptian pantheon. Every single one of them strikes at the heart of something that the people of Egypt had deified and looked to for their source of security. The very first plague is the plague on the Nile. The the life-giving river of Egypt suddenly starts to bleed. And likewise, we see that later on the livestock die. Hail falls from the heavens. The crops are consumed by locusts. And ultimately, even the sun is darkened. One of the things that God is revealing in these plagues is that he is mightier than these Egyptian gods. That none of them has power the way he has power. That what Pharaoh looks to and thinks is divine ultimately can't protect him. For God alone is the Almighty. Something that many scholars have noted, each one of these plagues strikes at the heart of the Egyptian religious uh, religious system and shows that really the gods of Egypt are no gods at all. That only the Lord is the ruler of all things. There is no other God besides him. He's the unique judge. But one of the other things that I find really fascinating about this is that he is also the natural judge. Specifically, I want you to think about this for a second. One of the things that many scholars have noted, taking a look at these plagues of Egypt, is that actually they start off in a way that doesn't seem all that miraculous at all. That there seems to be almost a natural progression to each of them as the plagues move forward. Take a closer look at this for just a second. When you look at the order of each of these plagues, you notice that they kind of build on each other. I mean, the first plague is is something happens to the Nile, right? It says that the Nile was turned to blood, which means that the Egyptians couldn't drink it anymore. They had to end up digging in the ground around the Nile in order to find fresh water. But then notice how the plagues kind of build on each other. First, there's this plague of frogs because the ecosystem of the Nile had just been decimated. All of the wildlife that was trying to live in that river suddenly comes out of the river. And all of Egypt is now invaded by tons and tons and tons of frogs. And then what ends up happening is all those frogs die, and there's so many dead frogs around that the next plagues kind of build on that. You have this plague of of gnats and flies. Uh, And then from there, what we see is that the gnats and flies then actually cause disease. Disease first on the animals, and then disease on human beings. And and what many scholars have noticed, they said, "Well, well, look at this. It seems like many of these plagues are very, very natural. This would be the natural consequence if the major ecosystem of Egypt were decimated in some way, shape, or form. And one of the things that I find interesting about that is that actually some scholars uh, who've tried to discredit this uh, this account as being miraculous have pointed to this very thing. And they said, well, see, it wasn't really like there was divine plagues and divine judgment. What we're really talking about is some sort of natural disaster that hit Egypt. But... What they've missed, what those scholars missed, and what people who actually understand the Bible and, take a cl- and, and understand the biblical narrative have picked up 
is that through this progression, God is sending a very clear message to Pharaoh. Because one of the things that many scholars have noted is where these plagues end in the ninth plague. Because finally you get to the ninth plague, and what it says is that there was darkness throughout the land of Egypt. A darkness that was so thick it could actually be felt. A tangible darkness. That the Egyptians groped around and, and couldn't see, and yet in the places where the Israelites lived, there was light. What starts off as something seemingly natural suddenly reveals itself to be supernatural. And furthermore, what these scholars have highlighted and what they've noted is that the message that God seems to be sending to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt is that he is the God who rules over the natural world. And that when you cut yourself off from him, all of creation dissolves into chaos. Because the progression of these pit plagues actually takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Because it's in Genesis chapter 1 that we read the following words. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You see, the progression of the nine plagues of Egypt is really a return to pre-creation darkness. And that when Pharaoh asks the question, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? The answer of the plagues is he is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He is the one who spoke light out of darkness. He is the one who brought forth order and beauty and design. He is the one who holds the natural worlds together. And when you rebel against him, when you turn your back against him, you unleash the forces of chaos in your world. God is the one who authored the natural laws. He is the one who holds all of creation together. And the moment you turn your back on him, the moment you scorn him, is when you unleash the forces of disintegration into your life. This is what I mean when I say God is the natural judge. He's the one who holds all of creation together. And when you start to violate his laws, when you start to turn your backs on the ways in which he has designed and created the world, it leads to natural consequences, natural disintegration, natural chaos. And what God is saying in these places, he's saying, look, this is a warning. This is a warning to us about the dangers of turning our backs against the Lord who very clearly reveals his will. One of the, um, uh, I recently, uh, when I was getting ready for this message, I was listening back to um, uh, Tim Keller when he preached on this particular passage, and he said, it's kind of like what happens when you go to the doctor, right? You go to a doctor, and the doctor says, uh, you know, does your, your standard checkup, and then she sits you down, and she says, so one of the things I noticed is that your cholesterol is a little high, and so what I would like you to do is I want you to uh, really avoid eating, you know, uh, Foods that are high in cholesterol, avoid eating all these fatty foods. And once you start eating healthy, get your greens, start doing some exercise and stuff like that. Um, this, is the, this is what you're going to have to do to be healthy. Now, no reasonable person is then going to look the doctor in the eye and say, how dare you try to tell me how to live my life? This is just a raw, crass display of power. You're just trying to control me. 
Well, no, the doctor's trying to tell you there's a certain way that your body is made. And if you violate those laws, you're going to have a heart attack and die. And so I want you to actually be healthy. I want you to operate within the ways in which your body is designed. Because if you don't, your, your body's going to start to fall apart. We all recognize this. And you'd have to be a truly stubborn or foolish person to say, well, this doctor, they're, they're, they're just arbitrarily trying to control my life. You see, in the plague narratives, what God is saying is he's saying, in the same way that your body is designed to work according to specific rules and laws, so I have designed all of creation. And when I say that it's supposed to operate in a certain way, that is for your good and for your benefit. But when you turn your back on it, you unleash the forces of disintegration in your life and in your world. You see, the laws that God gives us are meant for our benefit and for our good. And when we spurn them, when we scorn them, it unleashes chaos. Think about some of the commandments for just a second. Maybe that, the, the greatest commandment. When they ask Jesus, so what is the greatest commandment? He says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what happens when we turn our backs against that law? And instead of looking to God for our source of strength and significance and security, we start looking to our job. We start worshiping our job. And we give all of our devotion to our job, hoping that that will give us a higher paycheck and greater respect and more security in our lives. Well, it ends up coming at a price, at a cost. Maybe it's that the cost is to our family and to the time that we spend with our children. Maybe it's that we pour ourselves over and over in, again into our job and, and we start to lose sleep and we spend longer and longer hours at work and eventually the stress starts to catch up. Chaos, disintegration. What about when God says you should forgive? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when we turn our backs on that call to forgiveness again, we unleash the forces of disintegration, relational disintegration. Not only do our relationships with that person break down, but, but that hardness of heart that comes from an, un, uh, an unwillingness to forgive ends up affecting our other relationships as well. We no longer know what it means to forgive. We no longer know what it means to have peace and harmony between us and the people around us. Disintegration, you're returning to dust. You're going back to darkness and chaos. God gives us these laws for our good and for our benefit. That's what we mean when we say he's the natural judge. He has built his world and his creation to operate in a certain way. And the message of to Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh that I should obey him, is I am the Lord who made all things. I am the author of life. And when you turn your back on the author of life, it ends in only one place. There are natural consequences. It is a descent into darkness and to chaos. He is the natural judge, unique judge, the only God, the natural judge, the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that dwell within them. But more than that, he is also the saving judge. Because one of the things that I find interesting Throughout all of these stories, all these plague narratives, every time God uh, is about to bring a plague on Egypt, he does something extremely fascinating. He warns Pharaoh. 
Think about it for a second. If God just wanted to punish the Egyptians, if he was just a, 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 uh, an angry and spiteful deity who's just trying to get Pharaoh and to, and to really stick it to the Egyptians, why warn them at all? Wouldn't he just rain down fire upon them? Wouldn't he just unleash uh, all these forces of chaos against them without any warning? And yet what we see is over and over again, before a plague actually strikes, God tells Moses, hey, go to Pharaoh and tell him this is about to happen. One of my favorite moments is actually in uh, Exodus chapter 9, as this plague of hail is about to come down upon the people. He says, therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. But give an order now to bring, he's speaking to Pharaoh, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. You see, if God really just wanted to judge the Egyptians, he wouldn't warn them at all. And yet over and over again, before the next plague occurs, God says, go to Pharaoh and warn him. Tell him that if he keeps going this way, judgment will take place. Go and tell him that this is about to happen so that he will turn and relent. Go and warn him that this hailstorm is about to happen so that he can bring his flocks and, uh, his, uh, her, flocks and herds inside. To warn him so that he can bring his servants in so that no one loses their life on account of this. Over and over and over again, God's desire is first and foremost to rescue. To rescue from punishment. To rescue from judgment. He sends Moses first and foremost, not as a messenger of doom, but as one calling for repentance, saying, don't keep going this way. Be rescued from the punishment that is coming to you. He's a God, he's a judge who actually desires to save from judgment. Imagine that. A judge who desires to save from judgment. And yet the other interesting thing is that he's also a judge who saves through judgment. Because right before that, notice what he says. This is just amazing to me. This is in Exodus uh, chapter 9, again, verse 15. He says, for by now, this is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. One of the things that God says is he says, even through this judgment, my name will be proclaimed. Even through this judgment, I will bring my message of salvation. Through this judgment, I will rescue my people and bring them into a good land. Through this judgment, the nations will know that there is a God who rules over all, one who made the heavens and the earth, one who rescues people from slavery and bondage. The world will know. Through this judgment, I will bring salvation. He is the saving judge who not only desires to save us from judgment, but saves through judgment. Like, well, how, do, how does he save through judgment? Well, there's one other place that I think is worth noting. Something that I find 
just truly astounding when you understand the Exodus story in all of its power and in all of its beauty. It's something that we encounter when we go to the Gospel of Matthew. Reads that after Jesus had been tried, after he had been nailed to the cross, it says that from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And that when he had cried out and breathed his last, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and the tombs broke open. You see, God is still a God who saves through judgment, but he saves through the judgment that he ultimately bears on our behalf. For it was on the cross that darkness descended on Christ. It was on the cross that all of the chaos of God's judgment fell upon his shoulders so that the earth shook, the rocks were broken in two, and the tombs were thrown open. The ultimate judgment of darkness, of chaos, of abandonment from God ultimately ends up landing on the shoulders of Christ himself. He bears it for us so that even though he died in agony and in darkness, we might have light. We might be saved through his judgment, through the judgment that he bears on his own shoulders. You see, in the message of Jesus, we once more encounter the unique judge, the natural judge, but most importantly, the saving judge. The judge who desires to save us from judgment by saving us through the judgment that he would bear upon himself. He takes our place in darkness so that we might walk forth into the light. And furthermore, when you look at the life of Jesus, what you actually see is the natural judge turning back the forces of chaos in this world. Think of for a second now just about the miracles of Jesus. That when Jesus is in a, bo- is in a boat and the forces of chaos are about to swamp uh, the boat and drown his friends and his disciples, what does he do? He calms the storm. He brings order to chaos. He once more speaks over the waters and they are still. That wherever Jesus goes and he sees blindness, he brings sight. Wherever he goes and he sees the plagues of leprosy and disease, he brings healing. Wherever he goes and he sees death, he brings forth life. Every single miracle of Jesus Christ is an act of the natural judge turning things back to the way they were always supposed to be. Bringing order where there's chaos, light where there's darkness, life where there is death. You see, in the story of Christ, we once more encounter the same God who was at work in Egypt. That when Pharaoh asked the question, who is the Lord that I should worship him? The answer is, Christ is the Lord. He is the unique, natural, and saving judge of the earth who desires to save us 
and ultimately turn back the forces of darkness and chaos to bring light and life to a world that so often has turned its back on him. You see, the the question we have to ask ourselves as we wrestle with the plague narratives is, is, do we truly desire a life of life? Do we truly desire a life that is free from the forces of chaos? A life where we can know that we are not judged but forgiven? The answer is to come to Christ, to see God for who he is. Yes, he's a judge, but he's a judge who's full of, of, of mercy and compassion, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who enters into darkness so that we might walk forth into the daylight. See, when we look at the plague narratives, yes, we do indeed see God who is a judge, but more than that, we see a God who is a savior one who loves his people, one who loves even his enemies and desires that they would turn. A God who marshals all of his powers ultimately to bring deliverance. That is the gospel according to Moses. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that you are the one who holds back the forces of darkness. That you are the God who, who gives your laws so that we might know what life truly looks like. But more than that, that you're a God who, when even when we violate those laws, enters into darkness to rescue us. Who not only warns us, but who bears the punishment for us. And so, Lord, we pray that this Lenten season, as we look to your cross, As we look to the darkest moment in your life, what we would see is that you did it all for us. So that we too might know your salvation. So that your name might be proclaimed to the nations. So that more people might walk in newness of life and step into the light. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.